There's solidarity everywhere. Why does why do the powerful have to do so much to like make criminalize it, make it illegal? You know, you know, sympathy strikes are banned, solidarity strikes are banned, leaving water for migrants at the border is fucking illegal. <laughs> it's like because people are actually pretty kind, and because this what he called sort of like everyday communism, or I, you know, or this kind of like solidarity instinct, you know, is really actually pretty potent. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We are welcoming to the second time, I believe, back to the podcast, um, Astra Taylor, who is an uh, author, uh, documentarian, and has recently published a book of essays called uh, Remake the World. And um, is there a subtitle on that? I forget. Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. Nice. subtitle, actually. Nice and short. That's way better than the subtitle on my book that's coming out soon. Um, but yeah, welcome to the show, Astro. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's a, a book of essays. So of necessity, it's a little bit, you know, you're just sort of jumping from topic to topic. Um, but, you know, I thought reasonable to start at the beginning, kind of dip our toes in here, talking about conspiracies um, you, you have a, you have a, uh, essay in here about sort of, you know, conspiratorial mindset and how, you know, it's sort of been mischaracterized in, uh, you know, kind of popular media as being something that only happens like on the bottom of society. Um, you know, that like you have these weird groups of, you know, the weathermen or whatever who are, who are, you know, uh, plotting to do terrible things, but, Equally as often, you know, conspiracies are a product of like the elite, as you say. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if you see anything sort of different, you know, because in a sense, um, you know, you're uh, absolutely right to talk about how, you know, like we had a conspiracy theorist in chief with Donald Trump. Um, but it strikes me that like, Maybe in contrast to the somewhat more cynical kind of like uh, invocations of like a communist conspiracy in the 50s with like the FBI and stuff, which was more or less overtly just about like suppressing the left, finding some excuse to do that. Here with Donald Trump, we have a guy who seems to really believe like, you know, maybe there was some some true belief in the FBI and so on, but like we have a, a genuinely deranged, you know, uh, head of one of two parties. And in a sense that like, like the conspiracy theorists and the right wing media are in the driver's seat in a way that they aren't in other kind of authoritarian, uh, parties where the, you know, the leadership sort of sets the line, you know, now we have a, a Congress and a probable future president, again, Donald Trump, who, uh, you know... Bite is, your tongue, Ryan. Bite your tongue, sir. <laughs> He's... Uh, How dare you. Do not speak that into existence. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a power we sh I probably shouldn't try to invoke. But at any rate, you know, do, do you think that there's something new, you know, or am I misreading the history and how c completely... Uh, loopy the uh conservative leadership has become you know over the last like five six years it's a, it, it's hard to say i have to say i'm actually really torn about that about whether the conservative leadership has gotten 
um, loopier. I mean, I think because if you look back at the history of the right, it's been pretty off the rails. It's been pretty over the top and, and, um, and, you know, what I'm, what I say in that essay is that, you know, if you go back actually to the founding of the United States, <laughs> it would have been a very conspiratorial nation. And in the sense of these destructive com- conspiracy theories emanating from the centers of power, right? So yeah. I actually quote, you know, the Declaration of Independence, right? Which was, you know, it was like basically this coup de corps against, against the conspiracies, you know, of, of Britain and against, you know, uh, First Nations people. I mean, so there's always been this, um, this conspiracism. And, and so I guess that piece is trying to do a couple things. Like one is to say the most destructive conspiracies have emanated from the center. So the Red Scare, anti-communism, uh, and in that, and there are direct links of, from that history to the, the Trump regime, right? I mean, he's sort of part and parcel of that, that history. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm also trying to think about how, the suppression of the left has created this intellectual and political vacuum into which these conspiracy theories that we talk a lot about today, you know, QAnon, you know, just sort of misapprehensions of power. Um, this, you know, these ideas that there's these shadowy elites pulling the strings that are sort of all powerful, right? The, 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 the destruction of the left has created a vacuum where those uh, conspiracy theories flourish. And, you know, there's lots of empirical research on the fact that conspiracy, those kinds of conspiracy theories you know, really feed off social instability and insecurity and <laughs> inequality, right? And a sense of vulnerability, a sense of being uh, persecuted. So I'm very, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm someone who can really say whether the present is that much worse. It's certainly, you know, it's, it's certainly part of a historic trend. I think what's really, you know, you, you mentioned, I'm, I'm not sure what you exactly think about this, but that he seems to believe it. And I think it's quite interesting. I'm writing a, a new book because what else is one to do about solidarity? And I quote this op-ed that Donald Trump published in the LA Times in the 90s, where he's talking about Pat Buchanan and how this guy's so dangerous. I mean, this is Donald Trump writing. He's so dangerous because he's attacking uh, he's attacking Jewish people and he's attacking other, uh, marginalized groups and he's just doing it to get power. And it's so freaking aware of the fact that this kind of bullshit is a tactic. <laughs> and then you're like, and, the, and he's like, this guy wants to be president. We can't let it happen. He's just sowing this destructive, manipulative insanity. And you're like, wow, you know, and then he did it. So I don't, um, you know, I think, you have to have a kind of consciousness of the way these these uh, conspiracy theories have operated in the past in order to shore up power for the for the center for the elites in order to use them as expertly as Trump did. I think what we're seeing today, I mean, it's just so fucking dangerous, right? I mean, yeah, it is playing with fire, <laughs> and you know, we're I I feel we're on the precipice of something really terrifying. Um, and what's interesting to me, there's so many interesting things about this moment, but is like. You know, then you have this other party, the Democrats, who have been screaming about how our democracy is in peril. This is the most critical election of all time. And they don't do anything. They don't even do anything to protect basic voting rights or anything. So they're like, they're like, they seem to be the people they 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 just seem to have like they lack the courage of their convictions in this way. That's absolutely mind boggling when you're when they're facing off against 
um, people who will embrace totally bonkers ideology to maintain power. And that's, I think that's the thing. We, we see that capitalism, capitalism will embrace, you know, and plutocrats will embrace, um, you know, just totally gonzo ideas as long as it increases their power and profits. I mean, and so that is, yeah. that's, that's not new. Yeah. The, uh, just a couple more points on that. You know, you, you talk about like the sort of economic, like roots of a lot of this stuff in, a, in an interesting way that I think bears on some of the, you know, tendentious debates about whether, you know, economic anxiety and all that shit. And, you know, it's not any sort of simple one-to-one relationship that you're talking about. It's like the, 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 the breeding ground, the fermentation of this type of mindset, I think it's fair to say, is much facilitated by economic dysfunction and extreme inequality. And, you know, what you're talking about with the, with the Democrats, I think that they, um, are not realizing, or at least like the swing votes in Congress are not realizing, uh, the extent to which like they have sort of sawed off the limb that they w- were sitting on in decades past in the form of like the labor movement and any sort of broader left wing, uh, institutional apparatus, you know, in the, in, in the, uh, you know, the, the interwar years, um, you know, the, the there was a similar, you know, it's kind of terror of, social democratic parties, you know, being a sort of vanguard for communism, when in fact they had, you know, as Eric Hobsbawm says, become the indispensable prop of liberal democratic political systems, people who were, uh, you know, state sustaining rather than state destroying. And people like Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema seems to be completely blind to the idea that they might need some sort of power base behind you know, the simplest kind of representative democracy, uh, you know, just to sort of keep the country putting one foot in front of the other, as opposed to falling to some kind of right wing dictatorship, right? I mean, it's so true. There's so much there. I mean, one is you just wish that the Democrats fought Republicans as vigorously as they fight the left, <laughs> yeah. or even that. 10% as vigorously. So that's something I, I mean, but also you have to be so ignorant of history to think that you don't need a robust organized left to have basic liberal democratic rights and freedoms because, you know, we all these things that we take for granted as part of liberal democracy, the right to vote were advanced by socialists, you know, and, and, you know, required communists occasionally to, you know, strike and help push for them. So it's like, if you, if you do not have I, I, I just don't understand how you hold that much power without this basic awareness of power dynamics and how it helps to have people, you know, to your left and it helps to have a base. But the reason I wrote about conspiracy theories, I mean, it was, you know, for multiple reasons. One is, you know, there's just been a lot of attention to them, right? A lot of sort of hand wringing, like, oh my gosh, these people believe things that are totally outrageous and we need to fact check them and get them back on track and they need to trust science and all of this stuff, which, you know, I wish they did. <laughs> but um, I was I was captivated by the by the etymology of the word it's conspiracy. Love that. Yeah. And I it, it's like a complete I mean, it's something that's just I, I like to do. It's like, what are the hidden meanings of words? I mean, it's just always fascinating. But conspiracy, I think, is, is especially so because it, it means going back to Latin to breathe together, but it means basically to, to, to be an ally, to form a union. I mean, to live, to, to breathe together means to come together in a kind of formation. And if you go back to 
the founding of this na- of this nation of the United States, one thing we imported from British common law was the conspiracy doctrine, which is basically this really broad, you know, it still exists, right? The conspiracy doctrine was this very broad charge that was used explicitly to suppress worker organizing, to suppress unions, to su- suppress people from becoming allies, to basically sabotage solidarity. And, so what you see is that this, you know, charge that the, the working people are conspiring, <laughs> which led to, you know, making uh, unionization campaigns illegal and kind of forced lefty uh, labor advocates underground, you know, and and put a lot of people in jail and worse, you know, again, created this vacuum you know, where people, you know, are then sort of bereft of that community that a left-wing organization would provide. And they understand that there are, you know, a powerful forces that work in the world, but they don't have the political education that a kind of trade union uh, experience might give them. And so then you get, you, you end up where we are today. So it's just this, you know, uh, the suppression of the kind of conspiring that we need to do in order to have these basic, not just a, a, a socialist society, a democratic socialist society, a social democracy, whatever we want to call it, just to have like a basic liberal democracy that kind of functions. You you suppress those conspiracies and then you end up with the freaking that's right. The conspiracy va- theories that dominate today. They fill the vacuum. No, I, I must yeah. say that this this essay, Breathing Together, um, really moved me. I thought it was brilliant because of how we, we on the left need to reclaim language because ideology uh, matters, right? Ideas matter uh, just the same way that there's this movement to reclaim freedom from the right. I, I think this was really important because you, you have this distortion of truth we talked about with with Trump, but also in the history, this distortion of, uh, you know, as you, as you show, the law gets to define w- what's a negative conspiracy and what's a collaboration that's, that's okay. And that's always kind of weighted against the people. And, um, and so if we, if we can show how interdependent we all are and how understanding these, uh, ideas, uh, I mean, the idea that policing is asphyxiating us, that climate change is asphyxiating us, that pandemics, right, are, are, are controlling our inability to breathe literally, but then figuratively, we all need to understand as, as you write about so beautifully, we're not rigid, atomistic, separate, individuals, right? We all are really um, kind of permeating each other and touching each other in these ways. And if we don't recognize that, then we can't have the solidarity and we can't resist and fight for justice. And so this is the dichotomy to me, the kind of law and order rigidity that that is all about security and defensiveness and posturing and fear and othering and aggressiveness versus the socialist ethos that recognizes that we really are interconnected and that how we relate, because socialism and capitalism are about how we relate to one another, our relationships. Really, we need to understand that the, the truth of who we are should tell us what it means uh, to be together. So I really thought this, this was an essay that delved into so many things through that metaphor beautifully. You know, it's a kind of banality, but we're interdependent. That's why there's a climate crisis. That's what the pandemic has shown us, you know, that no human being is an island. You can't really separate yourself off. And, you know, of course, that's also what attracted me to this idea of breath in that original meaning of conspiracy to breathe together. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we're in this really 
tragic period where you hear the chant for what, how many years have we been hearing the chant? I can't breathe. And, you know, the, you know, we now are becoming accustomed to these annual wildfires that blaze across the West coast. And, um, you know, and thinking about COVID and, and how it disproportionately affected, you know, people who are low income and people who are frontline workers and all of this. And so, I mean, that, that, that is the ultimate delusion, right? Is this idea that we can be autonomous, that we can be cut off, that we don't need each other, that we're individuals. Uh, maybe there's families, <laughs> but that's it. And, um, yeah. And it's something we just have to constantly push back against. It's like, no, we're connected. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh you know, let me plug my, uh, my book, um, uh, that's coming up in September. That's basically the central thesis of the, you know, economic argument, the, the fact of interdependence. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, anyways, uh, to stop, uh, uh trampling on, on <laughs> the conversation here, I, I wanted to ask a, a little bit about student debt. You have this, um, essay in here, uh, wipe the slate clean and New Yorker essay, that, uh, you know, you talk about David Graeber. Um, we did an episode on him a while back. Um, and, you know, you sort of talk about the moral, ethical and, and, uh, economic dimensions of student debt in, you know, a very compelling way. Um, but I wanted to just add a little bit of, you know, a, a, a piece to the pile, I guess, uh, which is some, uh, analysis from an economist, another friend of the podcast, uh, Marshall Steinbaum. And if you go and you look at the student debt balances over time, what you find is that an ever increasing proportion of people uh, who have student loans are making no progress at all on repaying them. The cost of college goes up by like, you know, what, four or five percent a year. Wages are flat. People can't pay. And uh, so uh, an increasing proportion of people are being put into IDR, income-driven repayment. And what the, the promise of this basically is, is that you'll pay only a percentage of your income on these student loans for some period of time, you know, maybe 20 years, whatever, and then you'll get the debt forgiven. Uh, but because your wages, for the most part, are not high enough to make a dent in your balance, what what happens is you have this ballooning load of like imaginary debt uh sort of just g getting bigger and bigger uh, on your back making it harder for you to buy a house a car you know get, screws up your credit rating which uh, makes it harder to get a job too um, people don't have kids they don't get married right yeah yeah this big uh, fa uh phantasmagorical economic burden uh, which is just due to the way that the, you know, subsidies have been structured and the way that sort of semi-predatory institutions of higher education have captured those subsidies. And um, so I think the way that you talk about, you know, the, the, the fairness of it is, is compelling, especially in that analysis, because not only are you talking about, you know, people who are, are, are victimized by injustice, this, this, as a, technical accounting matter the system doesn't work and the debt will not be repaid almost all of it by the way owned by the federal government itself and so uh you know it's a, a question of just like facing reality in a sense you know from a brass tax even capitalist perspective there's no money to pay this off somebody's gonna take the hit the debt is bad 
And so I thought that this, you know, the idea of a, of a jubilee is particularly compelling in the light of what is functionally a, if, a, a situation of bankruptcy. You know, that's what IDR is, a, a, a way to uh, declare bankruptcy on your student loans, except you have to sit there for 20 years uh, with your life on pause. And it's just horrendously unjust. The problem is capitalism is not rational. I mean, it doesn't efficiently yeah. allocate capital. It doesn't assess risk rationally. It doesn't face face the facts, right? I mean, it does depend on a kind of funny math. And and it's about power. I mean, this is this is one thing that you know David was very clear on that debt is uh of course a financial instrument, but fundamentally it's a, an instrument of power. It's a, a a power relation. Marshall Steinbaum's research is fantastic and he's someone who I, I can say one hundred percent that when you're looking at his um you know, his breakdowns and his analysis that you can trust it because there's so much bullshit out there. What's astonishing, and, and this is something Marshall and I complain about together, is that so much of the research in the space of student debt, so so many of the quote unquote experts are actually just complete hacks. I mean, they're funded by this foundation called the Lumina Foundation that's literally student loan servicing money, and they masquerade as, you know, sort of neutral te technocrats on this. Uh, Marshall is someone who can be trusted. And, you know, I, just to underscore what you laid out really well, you know, if you're on income driven repayment, uh, an income driven repayment plan, by the time you get your loans, quote unquote, forgiven, you've probably paid back what you borrowed and a lot more. Yep. Right. I mean, the yep. chances are you have technically paid back again, the federal government, which doesn't need your money far more than the principal than the initial amount you borrowed. And as you said, your credit score, you know, your debt to income ratio, uh, is, is then, you know, out of whack and your credit score is probably bad. So therefore you paid more for every other line of credit, whether it's a mortgage, if you can get one, which is doubtful or just credit card. So there's research showing how many thousands of dollars, you know, in other fees and other increased income, uh, Charges that student debtors are forced to pay. Uh, so that's really unjust. Of course, this has, you know, erased, erased and gendered dimension because that's the system we yep. live in. And so, you know, you have basically black borrowers who, you know, after graduation are like far deeper in the hole, uh, like radically deeper in the hole than their white counterparts because of a lack of intergenerational wealth and, and uh, wage discrimination. So the system is just, you know, it's absolutely bonkers. And again, this is because people are pursuing something that should be a public good and is essential to any democracy. And let's just say a democracy where perhaps conspiracy theories of the very destructive sort don't flourish as much, right? I mean, in other words, like, why the hell are we treating education as and not just a commodity, but something that you have to mortgage your entire future for, right? And be paying off till you're 50 years old. And in fact, the fastest group of student debtors is senior citizens who, because we don't provide, um, you know, basic social support in this country, you know, if you're, if you go through a recession, right, like, you know, or, or a downturn, like the one we're living in, you lose your job. Oh, well, then it's up to you to get job training, to reinvent yourself, to go back to school. And then you, you know, wind up saddled with student loans and, you know, you're never, you're never going to retire. So it's, it's just, it's just one of these things where, you know, it's a, it's a reason to mention student loans were not even measured by the federal government until the late nineties. They were so insignificant. 
you know, we can turn the ship around. We took a kind of wrong turn on the road to the future. We know the solution. It's called canceling student debt, making public colleges free. We'd all be better off. We'd all be richer um, because, you know, people would actually be spending the money they're now paying their student loan servicers and paying the federal government. They'd be spending on housing and child care and I don't know, food or I don't care. They can buy whatever they want in my book. Mm. You know, um, <laughs> I'm not going to make any moral judgments. Uh, but the, the thing is, we're we're up against people in Washington who basically designed the system and they're so invested in it because they made it right. I mean, it's really interesting when you think about just how new this arrangement is. I mean, the, the building blocks of it were put in place with the Higher Education Act of 1965. But basically, this is like this is really something from the last what is it, 25, 30 years? Yeah. Yeah. It was intended as a money making device for the federal government. And, you know, th this is something that's only become clear to me fairly recently is is uh, in addition to, you know, restructuring the, the payment system, free college, that is, you know, uh, the, the, the education system being funded in a way similar to K through 12 uh, through some sort of state subsidy would be um, it, it, it would turn higher education back towards the public good it was originally intended to be not not just a way f so that people could get a cheap education D you know you know we talk about like capitalism it's like the the higher education system is not any it's not a capitalist marketplace like like you're not exchanging goods and services like in some sort of like uh bazaar or whatever uh, but <laughs> capitalist logic has penetrated into the university. And that, I think, explains why the prices keep going up year after year. The, the, like they charge what the market will bear, so to speak. And so changing it to a, a public service in which the, the government had to directly lay out uh, the, the, the costs of you know, what they're going to pay for this stuff would mean public universities would have to justify their expenditures and effectively, just like with Medicare for all, it would be price controls for education and it would make it more about uh, what do we want out of this public service and not how many more climbing walls do we need at, you know, Purdue. Um, and, you know, I think that that the 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 case for for free education is compelling in many ways. But that's something that's only become clear to me, you know, just like how Medicare for all would revolutionize the the healthcare system to make it not so damn expensive, uh, free college would have the same effect, I think. But I think that's where the discipline thing comes in, because if you trace the history of student loans or just, you know, it, it, before that, the imposition of tuition and fees, the move away from college as a public good, because this is something where you can point to the idea explicitly being there that you know, of course, it wasn't open to everybody. You know, we lived in a in a sort of pre-civil rights, pre-feminist world. But this idea that that education should be provided on a democratic basis. Right. Yeah. Um, and that it should be free. And so you have something like the University of California master plan where, you know, every citizen in California was entitled to tuition free higher education. And that was attacked explicitly by Ronald Reagan, who, you know, was governor and a and the neoliberal economists who were advising him. And part of their mission was putting down the student protesters, right? The anti-Vietnam, uh, you know, and free speech protesters. Uh, they saw the black power movement, you know, kind of emerging on these community college campuses. And they basically said, you know, we don't want students holding these picket signs. So let's make them pay. 
you know, that will, that will yeah. suppress this not democratic in the sense of, Oh, we need to all be educated so we can deliberate, but the sense of like that being in college gave people the time and space to cultivate other capacities and protesting was one of them. And neoconservatives and neoliberals got together and had a little love fast and shut that down. And we're living in their world. Beat right, in the submission. I was, I was, I was shocked in your, your wonderful 45 minute documentary. You are not alone. By the way, I don't know if we, we mentioned, um, that, you know, the co-founding of the, of the debt collective and a really important debtors union that, that, uh, we should talk more about, uh, and all that great work. But the, the quote that struck me was, I think Reagan said that we shouldn't be subsidizing intellectual curiosity. Uh, <laughs> right. Which is just an, yes. a, an amazing thing to he hear. He really said that. Yep. It's just shocking. Yeah. It's just shocking. But that fits with, as you, you know, you cite Melinda Cooper's family values, this, this whole, uh, you know, divestment of, of kind of state and public funding for, for public goods like education corresponded with the, um, you know, privatization of responsibility for all kinds of things that as globalization continued really aren't within the ability of any individual to control. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's this just, uh, you know, terrible thing that, that, uh, has led not just to inequality, but to shame and, and, and all kinds of, uh, other traumas and, and, and problems that you, you document in film and writing. And, um, and if I can just for a moment, go, go to David Graeber again and talk about, this again, this contrast I find between these these ideological characterizations of human beings and and what neoliberalism uh, and market logic um, does to us, right? I, I loved in debt five the first five thousand years how um, you know D David, brilliant anthropologist, um, not just you know debunked certain understandings of the origin of of, of money and and so forth, but talked about uh, you know communal logic as against exchange logic. And, um, you know, the, the fact that what's, what we're all creditors and debtors in important ways, we, you know, we inherit so, so much to each other. We're gifted from each other. So many things. Um, but the pernicious problematic thing is, is the, the math, the quantifying, right. That makes something transferable and then crowds out the actual relationships and substitutes just numbers. Right. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, because I think that was a, a beautiful thing that you talked about, uh, you know, the Portuguese, Spanish and, and other languages that, that talk about, um, you know, uh, how, you know, much obliged. Uh, I'm in your debt. De rien, de nada. Uh, all, all these kind of linguistic signifiers of how uh, our human relationships are, um, you know, bound up with with uh, credit and debts, but not in a quantifiable way. David Graeber, you know, is is a well known figure. He was, as you said, this uh, very interesting character. He was an anthropologist. He was an anarchist. He was. Um, he published Debt, the book you, you mentioned, around the time that Occupy Wall Street started. And at that point, he and I had been friends for a couple of years. So David actually tried to get me to go to the planning meetings of Occupy Wall Street, but I was cynical. <laughs> and so I, um, I passed that up. But he roped me into the debt resistance movement. And, and that is what paved the way for the debt collective. So the debt collective is a union for debtors that I helped found. And David was there in the early stages in New York City before he left for London for a teaching job. And, you know, David and I, I, I think David and I have a very similar ethos. We're very in, we, we share this intense conviction that if you have certain political values, you should try to put them in the world and that you should, you know, really try to inhabit those, those values and to actualize them. And, uh, and a kind of sense of experimentation. Like, let's, let's test these out, right? Can we get other people to do this? Can we 
see what happens. And, um, and, and it's this kind of dialectic of theory and practice, like, okay, we've got this idea. Let's put it out in the world. Let's see what we can, can do with it. And, but David, that doesn't mean we always agreed. So we would, you know, David and I would argue a lot about the role of the state. You know, I mean, David was again, very committed anarchist and was like, the state is violence. And I, I would say, <laughs> no, the state is the Americans, uh, you know, uh, with disabilities act, the state is the fact that there are ramps for my disabled sister to use, you know, going into a private business, right? Like, let's, let's argue about what the state is and what it could be. So, uh, which is just to say that we had this, you know, really playful intellectual, uh, simpatico and also friction. And I think in the, in the death stuff, so when he passed away, uh, September of last year, unexpectedly, and that was really, really tough. And I, I had just reread debt because we were going to do an interview for the New York review of books. And I, I was just so struck reading it by the intense idealism and how it really pushed me. And I think for, for David, he really wanted to, he wants, he wanted to abolish all debt and really live in an economy of credit. And that's why he, he's, what he would point out is that, you know, we can't, yeah, we're always in these webs of mutual obligation exchange. I help you. And I don't say, Hey, you know, yeah, I brought you your coffee. Now you owe me five bucks, right? You know, or even if it's a stranger, you do, you pick something up off the ground for them and they say, you know, oh, thank you. And you say, as, as you quoted, right? You say, it's nothing or my pleasure, which means it's a credit to me. Um, and I, I, and, you know, so what I took from that second reading was that, um, I think it did push me, me further. I think the thing is actually the debt collective. So for the debt collective, again, we're trying to use the power of debt, harness the power of debt to organize people, just like a labor union is organized, right? To say, okay, just like workers can withhold their labor power, we can refuse to pay our debts, which some entity is counting on, whether it's like a bank or a payday lender or the Department of Education that can give us power to collectively bargain. Uh, and not just the idea, though, is not just to push for the cancellation of debts, but for social services, Medicare for all. So there's no medical debt, right? Free education. So there are no student loans. So what I, what I took reading David this, this last year, um, was that actually, you know, what part of what we're trying to do is actually get people to see themselves not as debtor, debtors, but as, as creditors, as people who are entitled. And who are owed a decent living, <laughs> right? And yeah. we see, we see that in our organizing in, in lots of ways. So, you know, people, it, it's, it does blow people's minds sometimes when you're like, Hey, your debt should be canceled. And they'll go, Oh, well, maybe it should be canceled a little bit. Like they could take some off. That'd be nice. And then, you know, and then we're like, well, hold on, you know, aren't you owed something? Like, haven't you contributed to society? Didn't your ancestors contribute? Like, why, you know, why is it that you should be in this position of just feeling all of this guilt, which again, which David pointed out often is like, if you go back etymologically, in many languages, guilt and debt are the same word. Um, why should you feel this guilt and shame? You should feel entitled. You, you should, um, you know, again, we're all debtors and creditors. Like, you deserve a decent fucking life. And it's not too much to ask that, you not uh that you not have to suffer that you not that you not be buried in debt um that you have the sense that you could have you know a decent future in old age so i i i um you know even i guess i'm saying that even to this day like i feel like david is still sort of pushing me and provoking me um and one thing he said that was all, one thing he would often point out which i think is just worth remembering is david would always say you know we actually live in a world where 
there's kind of small C communism everywhere. Again, we help each other all the freaking time. You know, there's solidarity everywhere. Why does it, why do the powerful have to do so much to like make, criminalize it, make it illegal? You know, you know, sympathy strikes are banned. Solidarity strikes are banned. Leaving water for migrants at the border is fucking illegal. <laughs> it's like, because people are actually pretty kind. And because this, what he called sort of like everyday communism or I, you know, or this kind of like solidarity instinct, you know, is really actually pretty potent. That's and right. there's a lot of work done to like, to stamp it out and to suppress it. That's why they have to lie about it, too. Always said, yeah. yeah. Right? That's why they have to, like, make anarchism look like it's about uh, violence when it's mostly about right. mutual aid and, and support and love. And, and, and I mean, that's that's why they're yeah. – that's uh, – you know, fascism is is the, the party of lies for a reason because um, truth honors the, the beauty and solidarity and comrades. And, and uh, you know, I it, it's just – the, the, the kind of substituting market logic for actual relations seems so fundamental to what socialism is combating in capitalism, right? Like, um, you know, whether it's in education, whether it's in, it's in any of these areas, uh, just removing the actual human beings involved. And instead, I mean, think about the, the promises, like in a, in a debt, there's a, there's a promise. And, you know, Jubilee is about forgiving promises because shit happens. We trespass against each other. Accidents happen. We can't control everything. But, um, but even the promise that, you know, as, as you document so well, the institutions made to all these people who are told oh, you have to go to college. And we promise that this is going to help you. You're going to flourish because if you take on all this debt and go to college, but guess what? We can substitute a contract where you make an agreement to borrow money and pay. And then we don't need to give a shit anymore about if we help you actually succeed in life. We can just forget about you as a person entirely. All that matters is are those numbers, right? And it's just the, the total erasure of, of moral responsibility, uh, democratically, institutionally. This is the, the corrosive thing, I think, about what capitalist law logic does, right? Yeah, no, I think that's, it's really interesting uh, the way you framed it, because you've said something kind of abstract and philosophical, which is, you know, people are are reduced to to the sort of number on the balance sheet and that these corporations make these promises. So we're all sold this vision, right? You will go to college, take out these loans because you'll get a return on investment and you'll get a, a good paying job. It will pay off. In other words, you know, that's part of the problems with the system of debt finance education is that makes us think about learning in this career driven, you know, very, again, what's the return on investment? Will this degree pay off, et cetera. But what's interesting and and it's the students who are featured in the film, you mentioned you are not alone. They all went to predatory for-profit colleges. And so the debt collective organized with them. We launched the nation's first student debt strike and we secured over $2 billion with a B, $2 billion of debt cancellation for these students. Mm-hmm. But actually the, the, one, the legal strategy was that actually there was a little known provision on the books that said it's called, in, it's called borrower defense to repayment. And it says, if your school lies to you, if they defraud you, you actually get your loans canceled. In other words, they do have to keep their promises. So that that was there. Then the debt collective forced the Obama administration to go through what was called rulemaking. It's where basically these you know parts of, of law are like made into rules so that they're, they can be followed. Um, and of course, just fought us tooth and nail. And then Betsy DeVos fights us even more pathologically. But you know what, what you have is even where even where technically, according to the letter of the law, you know citizens or debtors 
you know, have these rights. In other words, there's something that says, no, corporations, you have to keep your promises. Then we have these people in power who don't feel like, you know, actually um, doing what the law says because they don't, they, they're not in, they're not of the mindset that you have to stand up for working people or poor people, especially the kinds of people who are uh, preyed upon by these, these colleges, right? I mean, they, they just have a very elitist mindset. And I hear, I'm talking bipartisan, right? Where they're like, oh, well, you know, you, I went to Harvard, you went to the University of Phoenix. So I guess maybe you deserve what, what happened to you, right? Instead of thinking like, hold on, why is the federal government like pouring like hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars into these predatory corporations. Like yes. anyway, speaking, so, of, but speaking yeah. of this, speaking of broken promises, Biden, Oh my, I mean, I don't know. My head must've exploded a million times so far in his administration, but when he betrayed his own meager promise about uh, student debt, and it's still a struggle, still a fight, but, and pinned it on the fact that it would be about relieving UPenn, University of Pennsylvania, Ivy league students, like as if it's really about rich kids, I, I, that's, that's what I wanted to like throw the TV through the window. Uh, so I don't know. Well, I mean, it is. What, I'm curious what you guys think about the fact that now when, um, you know, neoliberal politicians or when, um, people who work at, I hate to call them think tanks, but American Enterprise <laughs> Institute sure. hacks, you know, hack tanks, talk, hack tanks. Yeah. Where they want to, um, bash some progressive policies. Now, now they're doing it by, standing up for the poor, supposedly, right? So there are all of these, you know, people working for these right-wing um, funded institutions that are now suddenly against student debt cancellation because they say that it's regressive and unfair. But they're, of course, they're not for like progressive taxation or anything to just make it up on the other side. <laughs> yeah, you you definitely see that move. I mean, not just from conservative think tanks, but, but uh, you know, yeah. Brookings and so on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that it, it it you would be helping like the, you know, if you do a a child allowance, you're going to be helping, uh, you know, upper middle class people who you know they they want to get back into the workforce. They don't want to do traditional gender roles. Um, I I think maybe you know it, it speaks to a a possible potential fear of what I see as the um the main task of like any kind of egalitarian socialist anarchist whatever like anybody concerned with the 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 right wing turn of politics nowadays was just sort of like building a expansive uh circle of sort of moral concern you know and and a sense of entitlement you know there's that that famous fox news graphic i think matt Brunick had it as his uh a twitter header for many times it was like this this palm reaching through the a map of the United States, like out, it was like entitlement nation, and I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's what we want. We want people up on their hind legs yeah. demanding what they deserve, which is you know a fair share of the national proceeds. But to 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 sort of again, their creditors not their creditors not debtors. That's right. right. That's, that's right. Rich. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're yeah we're all we're all enmeshed in these webs of obligation. Um. But maybe to to change the subject slightly, uh, uh, I think another, maybe even more important and more difficult task is expanding like that moral circle beyond the nation out to all people in the world. You have a great uh, essay about refugees in Greece. Um, 
and 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 you you sort of go into it through uh, the story of a, a fellow named Abid. Is I yes. pronouncing that yeah. correctly? Um, can you can you tell us about this guy? Abid, yes, Abid is somebody that I met while making my last film or my my last feature film. What is democracy? I believe I was on your podcast about it. That is correct. And and, um, and I met him at this airport outside of Athens, Greece. It was an airport that had been abandoned since I think around 2000, 2001. And I mean, it was absolutely surreal to, I mean, it just felt like the end of the world there, right? Because there were, there were people's plane tickets, like 20 years old, like still just littered on the ground. I mean, it was just like people had just evaporated, like the travelers and then been replaced with something like six or 700 refugees, mainly from Syria, but also from Afghanistan, from Iraq, um, and elsewhere. And so Abid, uh, came actually from Pakistan, but he, he is Hazara, which is, um, an ethnic minority. And his family had been, um, his, his family had been, uh, uh, forced out of Afghanistan by the Taliban. And so he was like many, uh, Hazar people was living in, in Pakistan, but really was an abused minority. I mean, subject to a lot of violence. There's a lot about this from human rights groups. So this is someone who left Afghanistan as a little kid, like so many. And yet technically was an Afghan. That's what his citizenship was. Uh, and, you know, and like so many, he joined, um, he sort of heard that call from Angela Merkel when she sent what seemed to be a very strong signal to, uh, you know, stateless people and to displaced people that said, okay, Germany will be a, a, wel- a, a place that will welcome you. And so that was his beacon. So I met him in Athens when you know, he, like so many other people I met in that situation, were like, I'm going to go to Germany. And I, I'm, it's one of those things where I'm kind of, I'm almost ashamed to admit how little I thought about what a citizen, what it meant to be a citizen, um, what it would mean to be stateless, you know, where these concepts came from. And so, you know, I'm, I, so many of my essays or my projects are sort of, you know, I'll meet someone or encounter something. It will cause me to finally, I guess, do my homework <laughs> and, and learn about these things. Um, yeah. And so, you know, of course, Afghanistan is, is a place that we should also pause those of us who are American and really think about because, you know, that was, uh, didn't we bring democracy to that place? That was something <laughs> right. I heard. We explored democracy. That <laughs> right? was, yeah. And so part of the problem for people like Abid, who are technically from Afghanistan or are from Afghanistan, is that the United States will not admit that it was lost, that that war was lost. Like, and just not lost, but just completely you know, like an egregious violation of human rights and logic and a waste of resources. And that, it, you know, basically, <laughs> you know, um, uh, and so part of what, um, so part of why people like him are not offered asylum and are not, you know, and, and that thus are relegated to this category of economic migrants is just that the sort of, you know, financial, po- uh, finan- sorry, not financial, sorry, foreign policy, establishment in the United States is like, doesn't it want to admit that it, that Afghanistan is somewhere that's bad to go back to. Right. Yeah. Though I don't even want to say go back to for a beat because again, yeah. he never 
live there. That wasn't really home. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't home. So, yeah, you bet, you know, I followed Abid. I kind of leave him in that piece, you know, there, but actually, um, he, he actually did take the Balkan route and traveled by foot, um, through some remarkable efforts. Um, he, he basically, you know, kind of, he was, he, multilingual and so he was became a kind of assistant to a smuggler and was able to get himself uh, after a really scary stint where he was kind of stuck in Serbia the border and you know I was sort of fearing for his life for a while but he did get to Germany and then basically what happened you know what I what I witnessed was just how he was put through this machinery of deportation and you know we even though we I helped him get a lawyer you know there would never be a any acknowledgement of his status as an ethnic minority. Uh, and what happened is Germany basically made a deal with Afghanistan and was like, yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you some money as long as you take back X number of people. And so like, you know, he's just eventually after, after years of learning German and, and, um, and really, you know, proving himself, he was unceremoniously de- deported. Um, and so it, you know, it, it's quite, I mean, I think this is just, how privileged and naive I am. Right. But just to watch somebody be kind of churned through the machine. Um, and, uh, and you know, I guess I, it was just really fucking sad. It's so cruel. Yeah. And he's back there. Um, and also, you know, he, and also another young woman who's mentioned the piece, Salam, um, uh, who's from Aleppo, they arrived in, uh, she arrived in Austri- Austria, he arrived in Germany, right at the moment when the kind of right wing was gaining ground, right? As in, in Austria, especially. So, you know, you, she essentially finally is, she's 21, she's finally reunited with her older brother in, in Graz in a little town in Austria. And, you know, a week later, these neo-Nazis are knocking on their door at two in the morning every night and threatening their lives and then taking political power. <laughs> so it was just, um, Quite a nightmare. <laughs> so he's back in Afghanistan now. I, I think yeah. you left it in the. It, it wasn't said in the essay. Yeah, I, I added a little coda. Actually, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys had a if you had a galley or not. But yeah, he. You know, despite you know the the his efforts and and it was really incredible. I mean, he was able to kind of get into this job training program again. He was you know he had basically learned the language. Um, but it's one of those things where it doesn't matter. You know, your individuality doesn't actually matter. You know, you are you are filling a quota <laughs> that the government's agreed to. You come from a place that fits this, you know, that checks this box. Um, and you know, the, the other theme of that piece is this, you know, arbitrary distinction between what a refugee and an economic migrant, right? And so this is the idea that certain people fit the category of refugees and, and get the international protections that that uh, bestows, which are inadequate. But the huge numbers of people are economic migrants, which means, you know, you're fleeing poverty, right? Or you're trying to better your life. I mean, you're trying to live because, right. of course, poverty is deadly. Po- no, poverty you- is safe. Nobody's ever been killed by poverty. Exactly. You know, and so then you're denied these, you're de- denied those basic, um, those basic protections. And, you know, as so many environmentalists point out, you know, there is no such thing legally as the category of like climate refugee, right? So what, um, because we're, we're living in a model that was formed in, you know, the 20th century, sort of after World War II. And so you know, categories need to be updated. 
Yeah. And, and so that, um, you know, I wrote that essay too in tandem with working on what is democracy and, and also writing the book that came out of that and just really thinking about this, this idea of like, yeah, what is a citizen? What, um, does that, you know, what does that mean? And, and I think the most striking lesson, you know, thing I took from that, and again, it's something that's common knowledge to some people, to some historians, but is that in the United States early on, you know, you, your vote, your right, the, your ability to vote and to participate politically to have the full sort of political rights of citizenship had nothing to do with your citizenship status, right? In other words, there was what was called alien suffrage. That was the dominant model. It was like, are you a white man, you know, quote unquote, white man with property? Well, then we don't care, you know, what passport you have. You can participate politically, um, which is really interesting. There are now some municipalities where non-citizens can vote in like local school board elections and things like that. But I think there's a really powerful idea there that we need to bestow political rights on people based on where they are, <laughs> what community they're part of, not where they were born. You know, because you see that with someone like Abid who, yeah, sure, he was born in Afghanistan, but his mother fled with him when he was a little kid. And you see this more enlightened vision of citizenship in a place like New Zealand, where after a year of residency, People can vote in all of the elections or municipal and federal. You know, you don't have to. It's not this sort of idea of blood and soil that dominates our thinking. And that, you know, the Trump administration was attacking birthright citizenship, right? Yep. We're, we're in a place where instead of going expanding, if we, we, we have to sort of protect and hold the broken framework we have. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it, it strikes me as illustrative of like a couple things. Number one, you know, as we've been talking about the absence of a, a sort of organized left, you know, I think it's fair to say that the, the German left is not particularly strong. You know, Angela, the SDP or no, the, what, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, over there is pretty neoliberalized. Um, Angela Merkel has been in charge of the place for like, what, 15 years. Uh, and then simultaneously, you have the problem of declining birth rates in like the core capitalist countries, including the United States now. And I think, you know, people speculate, I don't know if it's true or not, but that one motivation for Merkel to take in a shit ton of refugees, you know, who are a lot of them, as you point out in the essay, were like middle class educated uh, people from Syria, you know, like doctors and stuff. Uh, Workers. If you got to Europe, you had money, yeah. right? If you're poor, then you're in the massive... You know, yeah, you're in Lebanon. In, yeah. You're in Lebanon, or right? Turkey. You're in Turkey. You're in Jordan. Like you're not getting to Europe. Yeah, and that's you know, I mean, the European countries and now the United States, which seem to have avoided this for a long time, but no longer, they're looking down the barrel of a kind of demographic catastrophe where it's like you know you're going to have half the citizens over sixty five and not contributing to the tax base. And, uh, you know, no one to pay for all of your social services and whatnot. But then, you know, you bring in refugees without uh, any sort of compensatory egalitarian sentiment to be like, yeah, you're from another place, but, you know, you could become German, you could become American or whatever. And it's like, oh, here's this right wing backlash. And so, uh, fuck it, we'll just kick everyone out or we'll just sort of stop the process. And whoever gets jammed up in the gears of the machine at that moment, they get sent back to wherever the fuck we don't care, just as long as it's not here so we can appease the AFD. And that strikes me, you know, without 
organized internationalist egalitarian left that can collaborate, you know, this is like, you know, fast forward 50 years, there's going to be refugee crises a hundred times worse than what Europe has seen over the last, you know, few, you know, Bangladesh is going to be emptied out. Um, and if, you know, you could see a possibility of just being like, well, nobody lives in Europe anymore. So just bring folks in. So the, the whole system doesn't collapse. But if the right is in control, it's going to be put up the wall and we're just going to sit here and die, you know, in our sort of walled garden of, of like, like crumbling, you know, quote unquote, first world infrastructure. And I think it's a pretty good motivation for folks to try to keep, you know, not only constructing, I mean, we all live in our own place and we have to concern ourselves with our, with our like immediate problems, but to think about, you know, the international dimension and how, especially climate change is like definitionally an international problem that's going to require a, a expanded moral boundary of, of humanity. Yeah. It's, there's so much there. I mean, you know, one thing, you know, I was, I think it's in that piece maybe, but you know, we need freedom of movement. I mean, in this international politics, I mean, you know, and, and I, I totally agree the the international international solidarity is the horizon for the left. But, you know, we need to articulate, you know, freedom of movement, right? That we want people to be able to come to the United States, but also a right to stay. In other words, your homeland shouldn't be obliterated by war, by climate change, by poverty, right? And the fact I was reading the other day, something like, you know, a huge number of Americans like live where they were born, basically. (laughs) And that's kind of a nomadic person. You know, it's like most people don't want to travel far. They don't want to travel far from their community, their families. Absolutely. You know, and, um, uh, and so I think, you know, and, and there have been examples in Europe and also in some sort of, you know, uh, uh, small towns in the U.S. where actually, you know, and people, uh, you know, mayors and city council members have actively pursued that strategy of like, this town needs to be revitalized. Like, yes, refugees will do this because otherwise we have an aging population and we have, you know, like this town is de- literally dying. Um, one thing I wish the U.S. had, uh, that Canada has, you know, is that there's, there's, it felt like there were only sentiments for anti-immigrant, anti-refugee um, politics. And, you know, in Canada, if you I think it's a small group, I can't remember if it's like six to eight citizens can get together and you pull economic resources, like you, you raise money and you commit to, to like something like one or two years of basically like being a community of like helping, uh, you know, with education and jobs and housing. And you can sponsor refugee families above and beyond like the government's basic quota. Hmm. Right. And it becomes this way for regular citizens to expand the demos. <laughs> In other words, to, to big people to basically, you know, exp- like add numbers. And what you saw was this massive, I mean, basically the program, you know, at the sort of apex of what we call the, you know, Syrian refugee crisis, like the, there were so many people who wanted to do this. And I think if there was something analogous in the United States, you would have seen tons of people doing it, right? I think you would have seen this huge public outpouring. Um, but we just don't have, you know, we don't have state mechanisms for something like that. Uh, and, 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 you know, that just then makes it seem as though the anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment is more dominant than it, than it actually is. Um, but I think, you know, it's something to look at because, um, yeah, then it's not just, you know, it's just not, it's not just this sort of 
federal policy. Yeah. You know, there's right. a quota that's made by somebody in Washington, but also like it's not just top like, down. Yeah. yeah, people people from from the bottom up being able to do this and in, in providing that support that's both financial and sort of cultural and social. And I, I think, look, I, the the anarchists and the socialists have to come together because it, it's both true that it's in, right. Like, like they live within me. Can't you tell? Yeah, I am. No, it's it's both totally true that like having Medicare for all and the state doing that right is more powerful than a whole lot of mutual aid and does a whole lot of things because the state has a lot of power. But also, we need to cultivate from the ground up certain like embodied understandings through relationships and through new ways and forms of living with each other. And, and and that you know has to be done in a way that's not just the state doing it for people, right? Um, but you you write about experimentation and how important that's going to be. I, I think that's absolutely spot on, and we have to experiment with ideas. We have to kind of fail better, right? As you write about, um, because we're facing such immense crises that are interlocking and, and daunting, and we we have to kind of really think about how to develop who we are with each other and become excellent at living well together, right? Uh, and I think you know. So your, your essays really offer a lot of, um, you know, hope and ideas about that. So you know, I don't know how much more time you have because we're about an, an hour in. But, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about the, the piece on, on chirotic time and, and you know, uh, thinking about time and action. Like, that, of course, that resonated with me so, so much. Um, but also listening. And, and, and you know, you, you point out so much how we think about, for example, the, uh, you know, immigrants trying to come in, but we don't think about the actions that cause them to be displaced. And so similarly, I, I, I love how you look at both ends of everything and how listening is kind of an excellence that maybe we need to cultivate and how we are entitled to listen. So I, I don't know what, what uh, how you want to spend the, the, the last uh, few minutes of the pod, but there's so many things here that I find uh, important with respect to how we can um, imagine how to live better together right and cultivate the kinds of virtues we need to 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 experiment and face these daunting challenges yeah i mean you know those those essays i mean every, everything that ends up sort of ref, reflected on in those essays is some again some sort of encounter or some sort of learning typically from my organizing or maybe my reporting right so um yeah and then the essays become a kind of space for space for me to mull them over. Um, I don't know. You've kind of pointed though, I have to say like with your description of the, the merging of the anarchist and the socialist, what I'm actually working on and thinking about now, because I'm finishing this book on solidarity and it, it really is, you know, how do we, how do we create what I would consider, but state institutions, state structures that enhance this kind of small D democracy, right? Because we want people to not just be passive, um, yeah, passive, passive recipients. They need to be citizens, right? In the classical right, well, sense. Yeah. And so I think that I'm really sort of, um, thinking through that more and look and, you know, trying to find examples <laughs> where I see structures actually encouraging that kind of active orientation and participation, which is really, they're really rare, but I think they're also, um, I think they're really essential if we want to protect a sort of social democratic state or democratic socialist state, right? Because the thing is, if the state is something that's just estranged from regular people, then, and it's in the control of the elites, then sure, they can privatize it. They can sell it off, right? right. right. It can be, it makes it so much uh, weaker. And so anyway, that is, um, I do like my 
the things I've written about in the past, but I'm always, I'm always like yeah. living in the present. What, what if you identified? So like imme- immediately <laughs> I think of like discussions we've had with people on the podcast about the Green New Deal, because that seems like yeah. a good example, right? Where, where it yeah. requires massive federal coordination, but also very local, uh, small D democratic, um, kind of yeah. knowledge bases and action, right? So I, what, what have you thought about in terms of that, that kind of, um, you know, local, national, state, uh, non-state collaboration. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think this example in Canada of these programs right. where uh, is a good one. Um, you know, I think there's an interesting interlude at the beginning of the great uh, of the sort of Great Society War on Poverty programs, where actually the state's mandate was to encourage sort of mass uh, maximum feasible participation, I think was the words. And they were, and basically the Johnson administration was basically funding, you know, welfare rights organizations and citizens groups, uh, you know, to, and federal money was funding rent strikes and all of these things. And then of course people, you know, the backlash, um, the backlash happened, but so there's even examples of it, you know, in not so distant history. Uh, but I don't know, I'm thinking it through, but I think that is the kind of, spot that we need we need to be in because i think as um you know i think we need to democratize the economy but also democratize the state because the whole thing is like right now we the people don't we don't own or control the state right when we say something's public like the a lot of the public services people encounter are violent you know are punitive it's the criminal justice system and it's like so you know or these quote-unquote public colleges are actually you know nine percent of the budgets from tax from like state budgets and most of its tuition or like corporate grants or uh, whatever. So putting the public back in, in the public, I think is a really urgent, urgent task. And also it's just an intellectually kind of challenging one because, you know, it's, it's something we don't have a lot of experience with. I just wanted to ask um, one more question. If, if you have time, yeah. I just wanted to bring up one more essay on uh, uh, you have an essay on automation or what you call f- photomation. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's got to be faux like fake. So photomation. I yeah, think. yeah, Automation, yeah. Um, that that I think uh, is is interesting in the the current context, and and what you've just been talking about, Alexi, um, in terms of this panic that is ongoing about the quote unquote labor shortage. You know, for the last decade. You know, we've been taught like we've been hearing about this automation crisis. I mean, Andrew Yang did an entire uh, presidential campaign and now a campaign for New York City mayor that may well be successful. Stop the it. Idea Stop that, Ryan. You, that, this is the second time, Ryan. Robots are, I'm gonna, are going to take so much uh, all the jobs. <laughs> and yet, you know, as you say in the in the piece, in the uh, essay that. There actually is no sign at all that there are, you know, kind of Isaac Asimov robots ready to replace all the workers. You know, you you can see certain uh, aspects of it here and there. Um, you know, the 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 grocery store automatic checkout lines or whatever. Uh, these very primitive uh, self driving quote unquote AIs that uh, you know will crash your car into a semi truck. Um, <laughs> And, to be fair, uh, I did just get a Roomba, very nice Roomba. I, I still have to clean, you know, but there is a Roomba and that's, it is nice. No, I, right. I mean, you know, that, that strikes me as a, <laughs> a, a classic example of the kind of, 
you know, automation that it, that has actually happened over the years. You know, you're increasing productivity. You, you know, you're performing very, very simple tasks using, uh, you know, technology. But human beings are still at the center of all production processes. There is absolutely no prospect at all of, uh, you know, the kind of hyper-intelligent AI that could actually think. And therefore, you know, you see, uh, here we are in this current moment, and uh, suddenly there aren't, you know, workers you know, on demand for any small business tyrant that happens to need them. And like the whole business class is having a panic attack. And it strikes me that, you know, the, the, it, this tends to demonstrate how uh, much power workers really do have implicitly over politics if they could be organized, um, if they could you know, band together in unions or, or other organizations to say like, no, we're going to decide how production happens now. And be, you know, because you need us and the, 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 the panic I think is, is very telling in that, um, you know, the, the business class is looking down the barrel of a potent, just the faintest possibility of like, workers being able to set terms locally, being able to turn down jobs that they don't want, and they're shitting themselves. Ryan, it turns out, like Soylent Green, the economy, it's people. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. And so that's a kind of an optimistic prospect, right? I mean, the, the entitlement, we've been talking about entitlement, the, the sense of entitlement to exploited underpaid labor is so striking, right? Like they're like, we can't find workers. And it's like, well, it's, you know, isn't this supply and demand? Like right. you know, increase the wages. There should be some basic economics to this. I mean, the, the, that essay is pushing back on the constant refrain that is not new at all. It's not like a post-internet refrain that yeah. automation is going to make human labor obsolete, right? And what this does, and you know, Karl Marx observed this, and he, he, he said it beautifully, which is that, you know, it, bosses do not invest in machinery just to make the production process more efficient. They actually invest in it to suppress strikes, right? I mean, so you know, my, I think one of the things I end that piece saying is that it's not that robots are coming for our jobs as though there's this technological inevitability, right? Like, well, it's just, you know, and thus you are the cliche image of the Luddite, right? Someone who just doesn't get it and who is, you know, stuck in the past, but, but actually the, that capitalists invest strategically in technology that de-skills, degrades, devalues human labor, it makes people more vulnerable. Um, and, uh, that what we see increasingly is that, you know, people are, workers are put in competition with each other, right? In, in, on the shop floor with the specter of immigrants taking their job with, you know, the, the idea that the, the factory is going to be moved overseas, but also put in competition with robots. <laughs> and frequently, you know, they're, their sort of overseer is now an algorithm. So that's the case with, you know, people who are working for Instacart or Uber, right? The, you know, they're basically racing against the machine. They don't get to meet their coworkers. They never really meet their, you know, they don't meet the human beings who, um, you know, actually run the company. And, uh, instead they're, you know, having to, to serve the whims of this algorithm that's designed to sort of extract the mo uh, maximum revenue from them. And, and so, you know, it's just a, it's a piece that in a kind of tongue in cheek way, you know, says, 
you know, this is bullshit. Basically, we will never run out of meaningful work. You know, that's the basic thing is that I don't believe this idea that you're, you'll become obsolete because there's important work to do. The question is, do we live in an economy and a society that values that work? And that's why I turned to socialist feminists because what have socialist feminists done, but said, Hey, you know, all this work that's done typically by women to reproduce humanity. Well, that's not counted as work. That's not paid. That's not valued. And that's what keeps everything going. It's so that, you yeah. know, the, right. And so that is. That and you know, and, and we are to add another layer of optimism because we're getting to the end, and that's what we have to do in these moments. You know, is that we are getting to a point where, even among you know mainstream liberals, there's a there is a new awareness that care work is really fucking important, and that it actually should count as infrastructure, right? That this is something that's not yeah. outside or below the economy, and that wouldn't happen. That that would not be an epiphany these people are having without socialist feminists without activists organizing, without people demanding wages for housework and welfare rights organizers saying, you know, actually we should get welfare. We should get, uh, we should get money to live because mothering is actually hard work. We shouldn't have to, you know, participate in some workfare program to legitimize ourselves. Uh, so I think, I don't, you know, I think there is an interesting, we are at a turning point in the discourse, even even as somebody like Andrew Yang can can uh, you know ride to fame. And I think the last thing I'll say to tie it up with this idea of you know that we need this kind of democratized state. The the problem with the sort of UBI vision of Andrew Yang, you know, in addition to the fact that he's just it's like too meager, right? It's right. like this thing. Yeah, it's not. It's also that it doesn't. It doesn't give people voice or power. That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's it's it kind of a passive vision. Consuming mouth, you know, that yes. you're like your only service is to provide demand for the capitalists, you know. Exactly. This is just so that, you know, A, it's to keep you from t- getting your pitchfork. That's right. And right. And to make sure that, you know, we keep up consumer demand. Right. So that's your basically that's that's your entire role as a human being in this society is to be part of that consumptive cycle. And uh, it's just an incredibly hollow vision. And you yeah. see how hollow it is when you look at Andrew Yang's um, campaign. I, they're not even proposals. It's like no, no. <laughs> total marketing um, campaign. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, that's all he's got. Please, New York. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> no, we have to believe, Astor. We have to believe and have hope in the power of uh, ideas and truth. And I, I, I always go back to what you point out in your film, What is Democracy? That uh, philosophy and democracy in Greece arose at the same time for a reason, because we need to ask the questions, to pursue truth, to uh, dialogically relate and listen to each other in that pursuit. And, and isn't that something um, that a socialist vision can do to counter uh, the inhumanity of capitalism? And I think there's hope in that because even if we can't move Biden right now, and even if we, we lose particular battles, I mean, the discourse is changing on Israel, the discourse is changing on infrastructure. Uh, we are changing minds. And eventually, when those minds organize, that will change material conditions, right? Yeah. And I think we, we you know, there's a lot of, I, I'm going to say this since this is left anchor, and I'm very deep in the student debt fight, as we've seen, right? And, and people get so hopeless so fast. I mean, I That's can't right. tell you how many times people have said Joe Biden has broken his promise to cancel student debt. Yeah. It's like it is not game over That's on right. this. The process. Biden administration has requested a memo from the Department of Education that they have not received about the legal authority they have to cancel student debt. This is legal authority the debt collective 
discovered we, right. we 1965, right? right? Yeah. It's this it's compromise and settlement authority. We've been pushing this for years. We don't want Joe Biden to propose legislation or to, or we don't want Congress to have to propose student debt cancellation through a legislative means because it's not going to pass because of right. Joe Manchin right. and, yeah. and, and cinema. What we want is for the Department of Education to use the authority that has been in its possession for decades. Because if you, if you extend credit to someone, if you make a loan, you have the power to cancel it. That's yep. all. It's as simple, simple as that. And so we are so not game over on this. You know, the, the people united will never be defeated. But if you want that to be true, you have to join in unity with That's other it. people. So if you want your debt canceled, your student loans canceled, and you should if you have them, or if you want it for your fa- family, your friends, um, even your enemies, because you That's should right, for them, them too. too that's then right. I beseech you to join the debt collective and get organized because that's the only way that we're going to get the things that we're entitled to. That's the yeah. only way to repay debts is to honor others by doing actions that help others. Exactly. We can do it. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Just to mention one more essay in here, you know, you talk about activism, um, you know, s- social change and activism are, 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 Friend of the pod, David Kybe, says, uh, uh, you know, the, the most important fact of politics is slack. Most That's people right. are not involved. Um, and the, that if you're just one person and you look at Biden and you're like, well, he's not going to do the right thing. And you're just thinking about yourself. You're probably right. But if if a critical mass of the population, probably five percent, were to take up that demand in a really strenuous way, it would totally change the facts on the ground politically. And um, so I think we, you know, we should all keep that in mind. But uh, Astro Taylor, we have taken up enough of your time. Uh, Thank the, you so much. Yeah, the, the book is called Remake the World. We will link to that and the, uh, the, the documentary we mentioned in the description and all the other stuff as well that I've forgotten. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Astro. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for your book. Yeah, I hope it sells more than one copy. It's got a snappy <laughs> title, you know. Yeah. Coops, what's the they, what's the title? What's the title? Uh, it's called yeah, How How Are You Going to Pay for That? See, good title. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's a question that I hear too often, and that throws me into a rage. How are we going to pay for that? It's, well, you, I'll, I'll send. Anyway, it's good. I'm going to just set, if I send everyone who asked me that to your book, you're definitely going to have more than one sale. Perfect. Yes, at least two. <laughs> But well, thanks, Astra. You know, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Astra. It was really generous of you to give so much time. Thanks, y'all. Bye-bye.